Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. I'm Adam Masters. It's great to have you here. Before we begin, a reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what is right for you. Any general tax information provided is intended as a guide only. With that out of the way, here's Shane. Thanks, Adam, and good day, everyone. I hope you're having a good week. This week in the podcast, I thought I would talk about the last financial year and the tough time it's meant for investors, but also touch on the latest interest rate hike from the Reserve Bank. In terms of the financial year, we all know that it's been a rough ride, particularly in the last six months. Uh, That's been on the back of rising inflation, high and rising inflation, rising interest rates to combat that and with that fear of recession flowing from those high interest rates. And this has all been made worse by things like the war in Ukraine with Russia invading Ukraine. So if you look at the major asset classes, bonds have had their worst 12-month return in decades. In fact, Australian government bonds, as measured by the basic index there, have lost around 10.5% over the last 12 months, which is their worst loss. In fact, it's a worse loss than they saw in the bond crash of 1994 and looks to be their worst 12-month decline since 1973 or possibly since the 1930s. Obviously, the severity of that loss reflects the low starting point for yields and the speed of the rise in bond yields. So just bear in mind that as bond yields go up, and they did over the last 12 months, the 10-year bond yield rose from around 1.5% to 3.6%. That means the capital losses for investors in those bonds. So as bond yields have gone up, that's put pressure on share markets because it adversely affects their valuations, putting downwards pressure on price-to-earnings multiples. But we've also seen fears of recession. So global shares have lost around 11% over the last financial year. That's in local currency terms. If you allow for the fall in the value of the Aussie dollar and you were unhedged, then you would have um, seen that decline cut back to a loss of 6.5%. Now bear in mind, this followed gains in global shares of around 30% or so, in the previous financial years. So there's a bit of a payback for a very, following a very strong year. Naturally, speculative assets like tech stocks with NASDAQ down 24% and cryptocurrencies with Bitcoin down 46% over the last 12 months as a whole. And of course, Bitcoin has fallen much more since it's high at the end of last year. Those more speculative assets were hit the hardest. Now, of course, some did okay. Commodities literally boomed. Commodity prices returned 22.5% and US dollars over the last 12 months on the back of strong demand, supply shortages and the war. Um, But recently we have seen some commodity prices start to come down on fears of recession. Australian shares have also been dragged down with the Aussie share market suffering a financial year loss of around 6.5%. And of course, higher dividend yields in Australia have helped on that front mitigate the losses in in, uh, price terms. Of course, high bond yields and falling share markets have also weighed on real estate investment trusts. Unlisted assets like commercial property and infrastructure have provided solid returns, though, and there you've seen returns typically around 12-13%, and that partly reflects the fact that these asset classes aren't as volatile as listed assets, but they also lag listed assets, um, so they can respond a little bit later to the pickup in inflation and rise in bond yields. Now, Australian residential property for the most part, did pretty well, but we have seen a slowing in returns over the last 12 months. Average residential property prices rose 11%, but they did start to decline in the last few months as particularly rising mortgage rates hit. Now, of course, the combination of all of this 
led to, or is likely to have led, once the results are all in, um, led to losses for balanced growth superannuation funds. I, I reckon probably of the order of around 5% after fees and taxes, give or take a little bit, some a little bit worse than that, some a little bit better than that. Now, I, I think it is worth putting this in context. In the previous financial year, that's 2020-2021, balanced growth superannuation returns funds returned on average around 18.5%. And over the last five years, they returned 5.8%. This is after taxes and after fees. That's a pretty good outcome given that inflation has average, been averaging just around 2.5%. Obviously stronger in the last 12 months, but in the previous four years, a lot weaker. Now, I guess one of the big surprises in the last 12 months has been that conservative superannuation funds that typically have more conservative investment strategies are likely to have seen similar or worse losses than balanced growth funds. And that reflects the fact that they have higher exposure to bonds. Bonds are normally a safe, less volatile asset class than shares, and so conservative funds tend to have a higher exposure to them. But every so often they go through a rough trot at the same time as shares. Usually that occurs when inflation is a big problem or a concern, and central banks are rapidly raising interest rates, which pushes up bond yields, resulting in negative returns from bonds or fixed income and shares at the same time. The result is that conservative and balanced funds can both have poor returns in such environments. The last time we saw something similar to that was really back in 1994. Now, I think one of the big lessons of the last financial year was that inflation, long thought to be dead in a baby boomer nightmare from the 1970s, was really just resting and can raise its ugly head when the circumstances are right. As we've seen over the last 12 months with supply shortages, strong demand flowing from pandemic stimulus, and of course a bunch of geopolitical issues and some supply shocks in the form of floods in Australia and the electricity issues. The good news, I think, is that central banks in the last six weeks are clearly starting to take that seriously, with the Reserve Bank saying they will do whatever is necessary to get inflation back to target, and the US central bank saying that its commitment to getting inflation back to target is unconditional. Of course, the downside of that is that it does run the risk of recession in the process of trying to get inflation back down, but the upside, I think, is more important. Given the disaster of the 1970s and what that caused, the high inflation back then caused for economies and investment markets, I would rather endure the short-term pain of putting inflation or the inflation dragon back in its cave rather than let it continue to roam free, torching economies and investments. So it's really a bit of short-term pain, which is very difficult to go through, but for a long-term gain. Now, of course, weighing up the, the positives and negatives for the next 12 months, I think the, the big negative is that we still face uncertainty regarding inflation, how high interest rates will go, and whether that will cause a recession. And of course, if we do go into recession, there's probably more downside in shares because so far the bulk of the fall in share markets reflects lower price-to-earnings multiples, not so much lower earnings. If earnings do start to fall in the event of recession, then share markets have quite a bit more to go. Bottom line is that given the uncertainties around all of this, I wouldn't be at all surprised if share markets fall further in the next few months. The September quarter is traditionally weak for shares, so it's quite possible shares could fall into the September-October timeframe. The good news, I think, is that data globally is showing signs of slowing. Some may see that as a negative. I think it's actually a bit of a positive because it tells me that central banks are actually starting to get some traction. We've seen a decline in the US ISM index, which is a business survey. We're also seeing signs that core inflation in the US, this is inflation after the impact of, or excluding the impact of energy and food, looks like it may have peaked. 
and wages growth may have peaked late last year. There's another thing in all of this that I wanted to point out, and that is you know, a while back now, we put together a US pipeline inflation indic indicator composed of upstream price-related drivers, and that is now falling. In fact, it's been falling for the last few months. Uh, as we've seen falls in work backlogs, uh, declining freight rates, declining metal prices and grain prices and so on. And that gives me a little bit of confidence that we may have, at least in the US, already seen the peak in underlying inflation over there. And if not, it's getting close. And that if inflation starts to trend down by year end, then it should start to take some pressure off central banks, most notably the Fed, in time to avoid a, a severe recession. Now, of course, that brings me to the Reserve Bank. In the last week, they raised interest rates again. They're still clearly focused on trying to get inflation back down. That is their key uh, focus at present. Um, and they've signaled they probably have further to go in terms of raising interest rates. I've had a few uh, comments on the basis of this. You know, what is the Reserve Bank doing here? You know, the inflation problems all due to, high, to, to supply problems. Uh, the Reserve Bank raising interest rates can't possibly bring down the price of lettuce or um, solve the issues affecting our electricity supply, or indeed the global issues on inflation. That's all true. But I think the Reserve Bank also sees, and I tend to agree with this, that part of the pickup in inflation is due to very strong demand globally. We've seen that, for example, in very high levels of retail sales, even when you abstract the impact of high prices. And I think the Reserve Bank also is quite keen to signal that it's going to keep inflation expectations down. We saw in the 1970s that the longer inflation persisted at high levels, the more people expected it to persist. And that led to permanently higher wages growth, permanently higher price levels as companies budgeted for higher, um, you know, six, seven, eight percent price increases, not two to three percent price increases, and likewise for wage increases. So the Reserve Bank is aimed at, is trying to keep demand down or cool it down a little bit at the same time as keeping inflation expectations down, sending a signal it is serious about getting inflation back to its two to three percent inflation target. Now, I reckon there's already some signs that the Reserve Bank is getting some traction. Now, of course, it's not evident in things like retail sales, housing finance, jobs data, which I think reflects mainly the period before interest rates started going up. Um, that data is still strong. But if you look at things like consumer confidence, uh, very low levels of consumer confidence, falling home prices, um, and a whole bunch of housing indicators, which are now looking very weak. Auction clearance rates are down from the highs last year of over 80% in, in some cases um, to down around 50%. And falling sales, all of those things are telling us that the Australian economy is a lot more sensitive to higher interest rates than in the past, partly reflecting high debt levels. And that in turn will mean that the Reserve Bank probably won't have to raise interest rates to the 3%, 3.5% plus level that some economists in the money market is talking about. In fact, we expect that the Reserve Bank um, or the cash rate will, will end up peaking at around 2.5%. Yeah, so yes, more to go, but I don't see uh, cash rate having to go to levels that, that crash the economy and tip us into recession, albeit it is a serious risk. Bottom line in all of this is that yes, there's a lot of short-term risk. Yes, share markets could come down further in the short term. But I do think on a 12-month horizon, markets will be able to start looking through it and um, central banks will, able, will be able to start easing up on the break. And I think by the end of next calendar year, we in fact see the Reserve Bank being able to start cutting interest rates again. So 
bit more uncertainty in the short term, but we do have a constructive view on investment markets over the next 12 months as a whole. Now, of course, this is uh, dependent on short-term forecasting and short-term forecasting is fraught with difficulty. And I think for most of us, it's best to stick to a sound long-term strategy um, in terms of managing our investments and basing that on sound long-term investment principles. Now, there's several of these which I think are critically important to be aware of and uh, think about in times of uncertainty like the present. The first one is to allow that sitbacks in share markets are perfectly normal. In fact, these falls we go through are not nice, but they are the price we pay for the higher returns you get from shares over the longer term. So trick is don't get thrown off by swings in the investment cycle. Secondly, selling shares or switching to a more conservative superannuation strategy after falls really just locks a paper loss or turns a paper loss into a real loss. The best thing to do is try and avoid panic or emotion-driven selling because the problem is you probably won't get back in until the market has gone back to the top again, in which case you've just suffered a loss in the interim. When shares and other investments fall in value, it's worth noting that they then become cheaper. In fact, you could argue that just as we go to the shops and pick up bargains, um, there are increasingly bargains out there in the share market. In fact, with shares down at these levels, they offer higher long-term growth pr prospects than they did, say, six months ago when the share market was a lot stronger, both globally and in Australia. It's also worth noting that shares still offer pretty attractive dividend yields versus bank deposits. In fact, that income flow is still occurring. Another point, shares often bottom and other assets bottom out with maximum bearishness. So just when we're feeling the most negative, that's often when share markets bottom out. So it's very hard to time market bottoms. Final point to note is that during periods of uncertainty like the present, negative news reaches fever pitch and it makes sense to try and down, try and turn down the noise around investment markets. You know, spend less time looking at the financial news and financial news programs and focus more on other things which are somewhat more entertaining because I think by turning down the noise it's a lot easier to stick to an appropriate long-term investment strategy. So I might leave it there. I hope that's been of value. Until we meet again, adios. Thank you. Now to stay up to date on all the latest from Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series more broadly, be sure to subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. That way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back soon, but before we go, a quick reminder that all topics discussed today are general in nature and haven't taken your personal circumstances into account. It's important you consider seeking tailored financial advice that is relevant to your own situation before making any important financial decisions.